began with the needle as a world-changing innovation, followed closely by the fibres of life and weaving. I've travelled through the various artistic design styles, such as Romanesque, Byzantine, Viking, Celtic, Carolingian, Ottonian, Gothic and Islamic, informed by the natural world and in turn informing design for garments, woodwork, metalwork, stained glass windows, panel paintings, illuminated manuscripts and fresco paintings. And medieval embroidery was a reflection of all of this. The medieval period was well worth spending a little time on, as this was a period of true innovation, aided by the plentiful transfer of ideas and inspiration via trade, war and religion. I spent a lot of time on a true marvel of medieval embroidery, the Bayeux Tapestry, for two reasons. One, it's still in existence today. And two, its irresistible links through history, from its creation till the present day. Opus Anglicanum, a glittering and ostentatious part of medieval embroidery, was next, but I had to begin with a piece of clothing which hung over the effigy of its owner for over 600 years, the Black Prince's Jupon. Now it's time to move on to Elizabethan or Tudor embroidery. And while the true Elizabethan era begins in 1558 and ends in 1603, I will probably move a little either side of both those dates. So knowing that embroidery is one of the oldest art forms used to decorate fabric, and with a medieval period emphasis clearly seen on ecclesiastical works, with some secular and domestic work being done also, what we begin to see moving towards the 16th century is a shift in that emphasis from ecclesiastic to secular work. And much of that lies within the sphere of costume or dress, as well as domestic decoration. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. The Elizabethan era really was the age of the Tudors. Elizabeth I became queen, reigning from 1558 to 1603, with the period becoming known as the Golden Age of English history, or the Renaissance of English pride, inspired by international expansion, naval triumph over Spain, and new ideals, all fostered by a brief period of internal peace. 
It's the time for the flowering of poetry, music and literature, most notably theatre and performance, led by the clever language and wit of William Shakespeare. But what a number of historians fail to note or value is that this is also a period where those who could afford it again fell in love with lavishly embroidered garments and homewares. Towards the middle of the 14th century, we learnt that the great period of medieval embroidery had begun to slide, both in design and craftsmanship. Technical skill declined. Faces, which I believe are always difficult to embroider, deteriorated. Figures became poorly drawn and clumsy. And architecture, the stalwart and supporter of medieval embroidery design, became weak and formless. What the Elizabethans did was to build grandly on the medieval period's rich heritage. The effect of the English Reformation by Henry VIII was great, so much so that when relations with the Catholic Church were severed in 1534, the need for elaborately decorated religious vestments and furnishings for worship diminished too. So much embroidery at this time was lost, mutilated or converted for other uses, or simply taken abroad. This must have left a huge gulf in the employment and income of many professional embroiderers and embroidery workshops. But with the Elizabethan age came high adventure and travel, bringing new design inspiration and fostering that much-needed rebirth or reflowering of the art of embroidery, especially for secular use. The appeal for rich clothing and domestic decorations increased, as did the numbers in society who could actually afford to buy or make these luxury items during the relatively peaceful and prosperous late years of Elizabeth I's reign. Melinda Watt, writing for the Department of European Sculpture and Decorative Arts for the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 2010, notes this, a surprisingly large number of fragile embroidered objects have survived in public and private collections. A variety of contemporary concerns and opinions about nature, faith, family relationships and the monarch are reflected in the embroidery designs. This was the favourite mode of decoration for household furnishings and fashionable dress, as well as for ceremonial garments and decorations used in the late Elizabeth and early Stuart court. This new style was noticeably different from earlier work. Rich and sumptuous ground fabrics were still favourites, but we now see the introduction of floral forms such as the pomegranate, the Tudor rose, the traditional heraldic emblem of England, taking its name and origins from the House of Tudor, uniting the houses of Lancaster and York, along with the fleur-de-lis, a highly stylized lily composed of three petals bound together near the base and best known as the former royal arms of France, appearing in gold on a blue field.
Design work still included forms of scroll work and freely drawn natural forms, including flowers, fruits, animals, birds and insects. And just as with the Middle Age, illuminated manuscripts and Bibles, Elizabethan embroidery designs were highly inspired and motivated by ideas brought back from travels, books and artworks from their own period. Favourite flowers from this era included the pansy, rose, carnation, strawberry and honeysuckle, reflecting that Elizabethan love of nature. Depictions of biblical characters or religious narratives were still used as embroidered embellishments despite the Protestant prohibition against idolatry. Some scenes may be difficult to decipher from a 21st century perspective, but for many from the 16th and 17th centuries, the Bible was required reading, so they easily understood their implied meanings. And apparently one of the most popular narratives found in surviving embroideries is the story of a Jewish orphan, Esther, who became queen of ancient Persia. She was regarded as an ideal woman and wife, beautiful and obedient, but brave and faithful in her service to God and her people. Often decorated with spangles, these embroideries were sometimes worked on panels, which were superimposed onto richly decorated backgrounds such as brocade. They must have looked astonishingly opulent and luxurious. Embroidery was worked in coloured wools or silk, often outlined in gold or silver thread, or sometimes worked entirely in gold or silver. Common stitches used for Elizabethan embroidery included chain, satin, double plait, knots and couching. More complicated stitches such as detached buttonhole or trellis stitch were worked separately from the fabric, then appliqued and padded to add even more dimension to the work. Other stitches available to 16th century needleworkers included applique, basket, beading, braid, cord, darning, double coral, fishbone, goblin, goldwork, hem, herringbone, laid, laid and couched, long and short, loop, oriental plait, pattern darning, plaited braid, raised, interlacing, ladder, running, sequins, split, split brick, square double chain, stem, tent and wirework. Quality began to improve and was being produced by a diversity of people, including men, women, children, adults, paid professionals, as well as ta uh, talented amateurs. Most young girls would have been taught to work with a needle, but the type of work would have been largely dependent on their socio-economic status. Poorer young women would have had to construct their own garments and domestic textiles, while the daughters of the gentry and nobility would have had the facility to advance to more decorative and elaborate stitches, preparing them for their future roles in charge of their own households. Now, in England, two divisions of embroidery can be clearly seen in the way embroidery was used, either for the home 
on items such as table covers, uh, pillows, cushions, wall panels and curtains, or for clothing such as jackets, tunics, sleeves, caps, gloves, cloaks, mittens and headdresses. Furniture at this time was relatively plain, so textiles not only provided colour, but also some much needed comfort for domestic interiors. Bed sheets, pillows, mirrors and boxes were embroidered as well as cloths known as table carpets. This was a time when small luxurious storage containers became popular. Elaborate boxes or caskets were used to store precious items and it was towards the mid-17th century that the fashion for the three-dimensional embroidery technique of raised work or embossed work began to appear on these small storage boxes. One thing everyone had in common at this time was that all textiles were made and decorated by hand so needlework skills were essential in every level of society. Embroidery begins to be seen as an indicator of piety and diligence for most women. John Batchelor wrote in The Virgin's Pattern of a young woman named Susanna Perwich, who died in 1661, praising her skill in creating lifelike pictures. He wrote this, Perfectly curious every work in which a cunning skill did lurk. She had it at her finger's end and loved therein fit time to spend in black works, white works, colours all that can be found on earth's round ball. She did excel, wax straws and gum, silks, gem and gold, the total sum. Of rich materials she disposed in dainty order and composed pictures of men birds beasts and flowers when leisure served at idle hours all this so rarely to the life as if there were a kind of strife twixt art and nature trees and fruits with leaves boughs branches body roots she made to grow in winter time ripe to the eye easy to climb Thought to have been introduced to England during the reign of Henry VIII by Queen Catherine of Aragon and her Spanish ladies was another form of embroidery which began to gain great popularity in England. And that was the technique of black work or Spanish work. The Spanish adopted this technique from the Moors and Arabs who in turn had borrowed it from the Egyptians and Persians. And this is what I find absolutely fascinating about embroidery, like language, the lineage and heritage, able to be backtracked and traced fairly accurately through history. Some of the earliest recognisable pieces of black work come from the 14th and 15th century Coptic tombs and thanks to the Crusaders and Pilgrims, the technique journeyed to Europe, finally making its way to every Western country. 
Hans Holbein the Younger was noted for painting many portraits depicting the famous wearing shirts, bodices, capes, jerkins and smocks of white fabric beautifully embroidered with black silk, sometimes touched with gold to produce a richer effect. So famous did his artistry painting this technique become, the Holbein stitch, a double backstitch, was named after him. Mention is also made of black work in a passage from the Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, suggesting even he knew of Holbein stitch. White was her smock and embroidered all in front and also behind around her collar with coal black silk within and also without. Numerous portraits painted during the late 16th and early 17th centuries show entire garments covered with decorative stitching, luxuriously using metal threads, pearls and precious stones. Two generic terms used to describe embroidery from this time are polychrome embroidery, which refers to any design worked in multiple shades of brightly coloured silks, and Elizabethan embroidery, describing any embroidery from this period, but often associated with a specific set of highly textured stitches. This period also saw a huge increase in the use of pattern books or model bucks geared towards both the domestic embroiderer as well as the professional craftsman. Along with these pattern books, there were many other books available to be used by the domestic embroiderer to source embroidery design inspiration. Herbals were books used to describe the physical characteristics and properties of herbs and other plants. The most famous English herbal from this period is John Gerard's Herbal or General History of Plants, first published in 1633, giving a physical description, place and time of growth, medicinal and culinary uses, along with illustrations. Emblems were books combining pictures and text to create a striking presentation of a particular message. And finally, there were bestiaries, a collection of short descriptions about birds, beasts and animals, both real and imaginary, along with stones, metals and even whirlpools. This style of book became popular in England in the 12th century a prime example of a late medieval version of a bestiary is John Maplet's A Green Forest. Printed pattern books for lace and embroidery increased in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. An indicator of the popularity of the art of decorative embroidery and needle arts among those who could afford to buy them. Melinda Watts, writing in 2010, notes that the first pattern books were printed on the continent and imported into England. The first English pattern book was published in the 1590s, though the earlier examples are almost entirely copied from German and Italian works. 
pictorial designs were also copied from continental illustrated Bibles and decorative prints of secular subjects, such as the personification of the five senses, the four seasons, or the four non-continents. Floral imagery of oversized fruits, lush flowers and small frolicking animals are often found, inspired not only by pattern books, but also due to a general increase in the interest for gardening and the importation of flowers such as tulips. And it was during the reign of Elizabeth I in 1561 that the Worshipful Company of Broderers was chartered. While guild membership was restricted to men, surviving records indicate women played an important role in embroidery workshops and as professionals also related to other textile trades, such as the production of ribbons and trimmings. By the early 17th century, new ways of shopping were developing with ready-made fashionable accessories available for purchase. Items such as headgear, handkerchiefs and small decorative bags and purses, some of which have survived in fairly large numbers. These small bags served multiple purposes. To contain fragrant herbs and perfumes, alleviating some of the strong odours of daily life or as a top-of-the-range gift wrapping for small gifts. Yet it's the gloves which have survived through the ages that offer the most evocative and poignant reminders of the individuals who wore them. In the book, In Public and in Private, Elizabeth I and Her World by Susan Watkins, photos by Mark Fiennes, is an image of a pair of gloves given to Elizabeth during her reign by the Chancellor of Cambridge University. Made of supple doeskin, perfumed and garnished with embroidery and goldsmith's work, this gift must have delighted the Queen. As it's recorded, she smiled, then immediately put them on. Gloves at this time had a strong romantic association, perhaps even serving as a token of engagement, as our diamond rings do today, so it's not surprising that they were often decorated with symbols of love and devotion. The Metropolitan Museum in New York has in their collection a pair of embroidered gloves made in Britain circa 1600. The gauntlets or cuffs of these magnificently embroidered gloves are completely covered with minutely embroidered motives contained in long narrow scalloped arches, two of which appear to be repeated around the entire wrist of the glove. Some of these motives appear on other objects made in the latest Elizabethan era also. And to me, the contemporary use of design portraying these motives is simply amazing. Check out the Stitch Safari Facebook page where I've posted images of some of my interpretations of these designs. This description of the embroidery motives on these gloves comes from the Met Museum's website. A disembodied eye, raining pale blue and silver tears. A colourful pansy and a bright green parrot with pearls on its wings. 
The Weeping Eye is related to a contemporary emblem book, Henry Peacham's Minerva Britanna, or a garden of heroic devices of 1612. Though this motive was known as a symbol of unrequited love well before the publication of Peacham's book. The pansy watered by the tears of the weeping eye was a popular flower in the Elizabethan era and was known to be a favourite of the Queen herself. Though fragile and degraded in condition, these gloves communicate the sumptuousness and utter luxury embroidery conveyed, offering an insight into the highest quality needlework coming from the late Tudor and early Stuart eras. Embroidered onto leather and satin, worked with silk and metal thread, seed pearls, couching and darning stitches, and including metal bobbin lace and paper, these are the most stunning embroidered gloves, begging the questions. Who did they belong to? Where were they worn? And how on earth did they survive? Researching this era has prompted me to purchase three new books, surprise, surprise, to add to my embroidery history library. And I can't wait to get into them all. I'll try to get book reviews up as soon as possible. Thank you so much for your time listening to this podcast. I hope you become as immersed in the fascinating history of embroidery and artistic design as I have. Don't forget, I post interesting tidbits on Facebook and Instagram whenever I can to support the research that goes into each and every one of these episodes. Till my next episode, bye for now. Bye.